This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. You're listening to American Shadows, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Marie and Charles welcomed their son, Antoine Joseph, in 1814, but they called him Adolf. Marie cared for the home and the children while Charles worked as a carpenter. His gift for woodworking made him highly sought after among wealthy Belgian clients. William I, the reigning monarch of the Netherlands, commissioned Charles to make musical instruments for the military. His father's work meant Adolf spent plenty of time around music. He watched his father carefully shape the wood into fine instruments. Adolf's love of this art and craft led him to learn to play the clarinet and the flute. As a teen, Adolf helped his father make improvements to wind instruments. When he wasn't studying music or watching his father, Adolf spent his youth doing one more thing, keeping himself alive. The only thing that overshadowed young Adolf's musical talent was his ability to skirt death. In his mother's words, her son was condemned to misfortune. When Adolf was just three, he tumbled down three flights of stairs before his head smartly met the stone floor. Reports of his recovery vary from a week's bed rest to a temporary coma. As many a parent might commiserate, toddlers and young children sometimes eat things that they shouldn't, and Adolf was no exception. Not long after his fall, he swallowed a large needle. Fortunately, it passed without incident. Miraculously, he also survived after drinking a combination of arsenic, white lead, and copper oxide. All of this would be enough to age any parent, but Adolf was just getting started. He suffered from severe burns after falling onto a hot stove. Though the incident left him with scars on his side, he avoided infection. At ten, he fell into a nearby river. A stranger passing the mill saw him floating face down and rescued him. On another occasion, he was enjoying a walk down the street when a chunk of slate broke loose from a rooftop and struck him in the head. He made a full recovery. Adolf had one more brush with death. 
he happened to be in his father's workshop when a container of gunpowder ignited from a nearby flame. Though the blast threw him across the workshop, Adolf survived. The fact that he lived to see adulthood surprised everyone. He followed in his father's footsteps in making musical instruments, and Adolf presented nine musical inventions for the 1840 Belgian exhibition. And due to his age, the judges snubbed his submissions. He moved to Paris and entered another competition. He might have won, but someone destroyed his new invention, the saxophone. Undaunted, he made another. In fact, he made six other variations by 1846, including the sax tromba and, in 1849, the sax tuba. If you've never heard of them, it's because only the saxophone ever made him any money. People either liked the saxophone or hated it. And mostly, the saxophone found a following with the military. But it wouldn't be until World War I when U.S. soldiers and the era of jazz and blues made the saxophone famous. Sadly, Adolf Sax's luck ran out. He died in 1870, decades before his invention became popular. If history has taught us anything about luck, it would be that sometimes it's fickle. Other times, though, it has a strange sense of humor. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. Welcome to American Shadows. Nothing sums up Timothy Dexter's life more than the phrase, it's smarter to be lucky than it's lucky to be smart. Like many others living in Ireland during the 1700s, his parents immigrated to the Americas in the hopes of escaping British tyranny. England had stripped them of their land, religion, and culture, among other atrocities. The Dexters settled in Malden, Massachusetts, where Timothy was born in 1747. While the Irish were still not wholly welcome in the colonies, the family squeezed out a life as farmers. They considered themselves lucky. Other Irish immigrants were forced into indentured servitude with little hope of escaping a system that kept them subservient. Dexter and his siblings attended school and helped around the farm with the daily chores in the house, field, and barn. During certain growing seasons, crops became more important than schooling. The family was poor, and to help keep them fed and clothed, Dexter left school at eight years old to find outside employment. He worked as a laborer for larger, more profitable farms before eventually finding an apprenticeship. Essentially, families would send their sons to live with tradesmen who agreed to house, feed, and teach his young apprentice a valuable trade in exchange for free labor. Other times, the parents paid a small fee. Poor farming children didn't have much schooling. They were offered only the most basic education in reading, writing, and some math. By age nine, their schooling was considered complete. College for boys like Dexter was mostly limited to Latin colleges, requiring them to train as ministers of the Christian faith. Alternatively, parents could opt to keep their sons at home to learn their father's trade or find them an apprenticeship. The colonies were new, and tradesmen and workers were in short supply. Dexter began his apprenticeship at a tannery to learn how to make leather goods when he turned 16. The job was far from glamorous. Due to the smell of the animal hides, tanneries usually existed on the outskirts of towns. Tanners used every type of animal skin, from wild to domestic. The colonies needed every imaginable leather product, including shoes, boots, and hats, as well as carriage tops, harnesses, and saddles. Dexter's apprenticeship lasted for five years. In 1768, he opened his own shop and dreamed of becoming wealthy. But as good as his products might be, they would never build the wealth he wanted. So he did the next best thing. He married into money. 
He met Elizabeth Frothingham, a widow ten years his senior. She had money, a home, and four children. In 1769, he married Elizabeth while continuing his business selling gloves and moose-hide trousers. As you might imagine, with his available inventory and the British blockade of Boston Harbor, Dexter mostly lived off his wife's fortune. At first, Dexter hoped that his wife's social status meant he would be invited to high society functions. He was not. Many looked down on him. He came across as nothing more than a vain, poor, uneducated man who had managed to marry his way into money. The slights infuriated Dexter, and he set out to prove his equality and rightful place among Boston's and Charlestown's elite. Aside from making his own wealth, he had two other options. He could join the army and work his way through the ranks, or run for public office. He set his sights on an appointment in the town of Malden. And if at first he didn't succeed, Dexter tried again and again. He applied and harassed council members so much that at long last, they relented. They created a position just for him, informer of deer. And the appointment required him to track the deer population in Malden, even though no one had seen a deer in the town limits for nearly 20 years. Some townsfolk thought the position was ridiculous, but Dexter was content. He'd achieved his goal of having an official public office appointment. Now, all he needed to gain social status was to make a lot of money, in the most unusual way possible. During the Revolutionary War, the British pound had value while the continental dollar was practically worthless. Congress printed approximately 250 million in continental dollars, but merchants were reluctant to accept it, with good reason. They were worth pennies compared to the British pound. Congress printed more bills, causing the dollar to depreciate even more. The value dropped so drastically that colonists took to saying that items of low value weren't worth a continental. Congress paid the military with continental dollars, leaving most soldiers destitute after the war. John Hancock purchased some of the bills from soldiers at full value to help drive up the Continental's work. The good deed raised Hancock's popularity. Inspired, Dexter believed that if he purchased more dollars than Hancock, he'd finally be accepted among society's elite. Dexter went about it a little differently than Hancock, though. He used his wife's money to buy the bills for pennies on the dollar instead of full value. Dexter purchased so many bills that he and his wife went bankrupt. And townsfolk shook their heads and whispered among themselves that Dexter was an idiot and had dragged his respectable wife down with him. When the colonies won the war, a few things happened. They signed the Constitution and threw out the British tax and monetary systems. The Founding Fathers added a provision promising to trade treasury bonds for continental dollars. Suddenly, Dexter was exceptionally wealthy. Neighbors scratched their heads. No one could argue that Dexter was undoubtedly lucky. And while none would ever call him intelligent, some thought he might be shrewd. Dexter was delighted. Finally, his wealth would grant him a place among the powerful and elite. It did not. He continued with his rude interruptions and vulgar comments. Coupled with his crude behavior, he remained an outcast. Feeling they just needed to warm up to him a bit, Dexter continued being Dexter. All he had to do in his mind was hold on to the money and not go bankrupt again. When things didn't improve to his liking, he moved his family to Newburyport, 
The problem wasn't him, he insisted. The people in Boston were just uptight and stuffy. Newburyport, on the other hand, was nearly perfect. A rich and poor intermingled. The town was smaller than Boston, and Dexter felt confident he would stand out. Immediately after arriving, he bought ships for his next venture, exporting food. The residents in Newburyport found Dexter as uncouth as those in Boston had. The wealthy wondered how someone as crude and illiterate as Dexter had become a millionaire. His personality and business decisions made them speculate about his mental stability. Dexter claimed that the other wealthy merchants disliked him because he was a rival. Still, he wanted to become part of Newburyport's upper society, so he took their business advice to heart. He didn't realize that they wanted to destroy his fortune so that he would move out of Newburyport. One businessman advised Dexter to get into the bedwarmer trade. Though the device was popular in cold New England winters, the businessman suggested Dexter sell it in a new market, the Caribbean. Convinced he would make a tidy profit, Dexter sent 42,000 bedwarmers to the Caribbean. Unsurprisingly, the bedwarmers didn't sell. Oh, well, not as their intended use, anyway. The sugarcane industry was huge in the Caribbean. The syrupy sugarcane byproduct molasses was also wildly popular. Plantation owners found that the long-handled bedwarmers made perfect molasses ladles. Soon, plantation owners scrambled to buy more bedwarmers. Dexter raised the price by nearly 80% and made his second fortune. The joke the Newburyport businessmen played had backfired. But that didn't mean they were about to give up. They urged him to expand into the coal business. Though much needed, New England already had plenty of coal, especially in the England mining town of Newcastle. Still, Dexter shipped coal to the town as suggested. When his ships arrived laden with coal, the miners were on strike. Residents bought the coal for a markup, making Dexter even wealthier. The merchants put their heads together to come up with something even more outlandish. They had to do something to run him out of town. And certainly, Dexter's luck couldn't hold forever. While various advisors handed Dexter some pretty outrageous business ideas, Dexter himself came up with a few so outlandish that the townspeople were sure they would bankrupt him. All they had to do was sit back and watch. Dexter decided to send gloves to Polynesia. Again, his idea worked. Portuguese traders arrived and bought the gloves to sell in China. For his next endeavor, Dexter traveled back to Boston, where he purchased an enormous quantity of whalebone. This material isn't actually bone, but rather the strong, flexible, filtering teeth of baleen whales. A whalebone was used in corsets, toys, and collar stays. He'd purchased enough that he controlled the market and set his own price. Dexter raked in more money. Thinking wealth alone would win over his wealthy neighbors, he bragged about buying Bibles at wholesale for less than half price, then sent the Bibles to port cities. His captains carried a poorly written note from Dexter, complete with frequent misspellings. The note stated that anyone who didn't have at least one Bible in the house would go to hell. Of course, he had plenty of Bibles for sale to help save their souls. Dexter made another handsome profit, much to the town's dismay. Yet, they swore his next scheme would surely be his last. You see, Dexter took it upon himself to reduce the town's overpopulation of stray cats. He offered to buy the cats, and of course people brought him plenty of strays, unsure what he planned to do with them. Dexter sent them to the plantation owners in the Caribbean, 
As it turned out, their warehouses had a rodent problem, and they were willing to pay a tidy sum for the cats. With all his wealth, Dexter purchased a mansion alongside some of the town's most prominent families. While everyone avoided him, they enjoyed the company of his wife. This angered Dexter. He became so jealous of Elizabeth that he treated her poorly. He had always been a heavy drinker, which was bad enough. And now he started to ignore her, calling her a ghost and pretending as though she weren't a living, breathing human being. He cheated on her more than once. It's not clear if he had affairs with married women or not, but at some point, someone gave Dexter a serious beating. He promptly sold the mansion and bought a new home in a different part of town. He didn't treat his children much better than his wife. In turn, his son, Samuel, became an alcoholic as well. His daughter, Nancy, made poor choices in men. She married one who took to beating her, and she returned home. She also began drinking heavily. Still trying to impress the town, Dexter furnished his home with the largest and gaudiest objects. He called his new home the Princely Chateau. Forty statues, each costing $2,000, sat in the front yard. Alongside statues of people like Washington and Jefferson stood Dexter's own statue. At the base, the inscription bragged that he was the greatest philosopher in the Western world. Dexter furnished his home with an impressive library, though he never read a single book. He collected a gallery of paintings to adorn the walls. With the house and gardens complete, Dexter awaited his wealthy neighbor's lavish praise and attention. None of that happened. Still rude and obnoxious and unable to see the real problem, he'd alienated everyone, including his wife and children. Determined that his greatness would not be denied, Dexter decided he'd find new friends, ones equally as strange and outcast as himself. One such friend, a former teacher named John, had come from a respectable family. John's undoing had been to open his own school to teach students on subjects in which he had no formal training. His teachings were so bizarre that John's family disowned him. Dexter found another friend in Madame Hooper, a wealthy widow turned fortune teller. Hooper offered Dexter astrology advice and took her payment in tea. But even his new friends couldn't fill Dexter's desire to be loved and admired. If no one else would give him compliments, he'd pay them. Dexter hired a 20-year-old selling halibut from a wheelbarrow to be his poet laureate. In 1797, Dexter wrote and published A Pickle for the Knowing Ones, a nonsensical book in which he ranted about his wife, religion, and politics. Dexter could barely read, much less write. Complaints about his spelling and grammar rolled in. To solve the issue, Dexter printed an extra page of commas in his next edition, with a note telling the reader to put commas wherever they liked. The book got plenty of attention, though maybe not the way he intended, since he had to give away the copies. Still, Timothy Dexter considered the book a success. He managed to give away enough copies for eight printings. Newburyport took solace that Dexter couldn't do anything more ridiculous or absurd, and they'd be wrong about that. Aside from his bizarre behavior and business dealings, Dexter had started to demand Newburyport residents address him as the Earl of Chester. When the demands failed to produce results, Dexter took to paying them. In A Pickle for the Knowing Ones, Dexter wrote that he was the first Lord of the United States, a title bestowed upon him by the public. He claimed the people of America had spoken, and he was helpless to do anything other than allow them to grant him the title. He paid children who called him Lord Dexter a quarter. 
Adults were paid with dinner and drinks. His gaudy statues brought spectators to look at his house. While Dexter might have thought they appreciated his fine art, they were more likely curious about the tawdry outdoor museum in such a fancy neighborhood. Dexter continued to chase after younger women. Drinking remained a favorite pastime, and he often took to walks while drunk, his little dog walking beside him. A no one lives forever, and Dexter began planning for his eventual death. For years, he worked at building a magnificent tomb. He even arranged the funeral. Dexter wrote a will, making ample provisions for his family and friends. Though, after years of neglect and abuse, it took bribery to convince his wife and children to promise that they would show up at the funeral. Dexter was 59 when the day he had planned for finally came. Nearly 3,000 people turned up. Guests greeted his widow and paid their respects. Elizabeth accepted their well wishes politely enough and occasionally laughed with a few of the guests. Given Dexter's treatment of her, none were surprised that she never shed a tear. Well, everyone except Dexter, who had planned and faked the funeral. He'd wanted to see how everyone would react to his death, especially friends who he worried had remained in his company for the money. Dexter got up from where he had been pretending to lie in state. Furious, he began to berate and beat his wife in front of the spectators for not properly mourning him. His actual death occurred shortly after the fake one. He passed on October 26th of 1806. This time, he made provisions to leave his fortune to the poor, in addition to the wife and children he had treated so poorly. There is no record of whether anyone attended the second funeral. The massive tomb he had created was declared a hazard, and his family laid him in a standard coffin and had him buried in a small hillside cemetery. No one visited, and no one maintained the site. Grass eventually overtook his grave. Dexter may have been exceptionally lucky in business, but was unsuccessful in the areas he wanted the most. Love and respect. There's more to this story. Stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear all about it. I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Everyone agreed that little Violet Jessup was lucky. During the 1800s, a diagnosis of tuberculosis generally meant a death sentence. She was just a child when the doctors delivered the news to her parents. Violet would probably die within a couple of months. She surprised them, though, beating the odds and surviving this highly contagious and often fatal disease. However, Violet's luck did not transfer to her father. 
he did die, leaving his wife and six remaining children in a dire financial situation. The family had immigrated from Ireland to Argentina, where Joseph Jessup had worked as a sheep farmer. Without a way to earn a living, Catherine Jessup moved the family to England and found employment aboard ships as a stewardess. The work took Catherine away for extended periods, leaving Violet to care for her siblings. When Catherine fell ill, Violet needed to join the workforce to feed and care for the family. She also applied for jobs as a ship's stewardess. She was young and strikingly beautiful, which promptly earned her rejection after rejection. Employers shied away from hiring young girls with extraordinary looks. In their opinion, such beauty distracted the crew and male passengers. Jobs that paid enough for women to support a family were rare. Violet had to get creative. She wore clothes that made her look older and reapplied, this time without wearing makeup. Her creativity paid off. Violet found work on the Orinoco, a Royal Mail steamer. In 1908, she found a better job with the White Star Line, one of the largest ship companies of the time. The ships carried cargo and passengers, and Violet's job was to cater to the wealthy passengers every need. Additionally, she cleaned cabins, arranged flowers, and ran errands on the ship. Violet proved to be a reliable and hard worker, and was well-liked by passengers and staff. Though the White Star Line paid slightly better, she earned every pound sterling. She worked 17 hours a day on ships that frequently traveled rough seas in bad weather. To compete with other large shipping companies, the White Star Line launched three luxury ships, offering wealthy passengers an experience and service that rivaled the world's finest hotels and resorts. Violet worked on all three ships. She'd worked on the first ship, the Olympic, for a year, and everything ran smoothly until September of 1911. As bad luck would have it, the ship crossed paths with the HMS Hawk, a combat ship. Fortunately, the Olympic didn't sink, and no one was injured. It limped back to port, where everyone disembarked. The company offered her a job aboard the second ship designed to cater to the world's most elite. Violet was hesitant. While American passengers treated her well, rich Britons treated her poorly. The job would be more prestigious, the company promised. And the ship, though it had yet to sail, had captured everyone's attention. Without better prospects, Violet accepted. She kept a journal and made notes on the passengers. Some of the world's most wealthy and prominent passengers had booked a trip, and many were as pretentious and rude to the staff as she had anticipated. Violet had just returned to her bed when the Titanic struck the iceberg. The captain ordered all the staff on deck. She stood with the other stewardesses while staff loaded children and women passengers onto lifeboats. A ship officer ordered Violet and a handful of other stewardesses onto lifeboat number 16 to show a few of the remaining women that the boats were safe. The officer called to Violet and handed her a small bundle. Here, Miss Jessup, look after this baby. The lifeboats floated away from the sinking ship. They drifted for eight hours until the crew aboard the Carpathia rescued them. Violet still clutched the infant close to her on the deck when the mother grabbed the baby and ran off without so much as a thank you. Violet returned to work aboard the newly repaired Olympic until World War I broke out in 1914 when she served as a nurse above the White Star Line's third ship, the Britannic. The ship hit a German mine in the Aegean Sea. Violet and several shipmates made it to a lifeboat only to realize the sinking ship's propellers were at surface level and pulling them in. They abandoned the ship and tried to swim away. Violet's head struck the keel. Luckily, someone on another boat pulled her to safety. 
Though she did return to work as a stewardess, Violet eventually decided to not press her luck any further. She found work on land, where she remained until she died in 1971, at the age of 84. American Shadows is hosted by Lauren Vogelbaum. This episode was written by Michelle Muto, researched by Ali Steed, and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Trevor Young, with executive producers Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about the show, visit GrimmandMile.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. If tonight's movie night is just what you need, make it special with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Since every minute counts when you're a new parent, who wants to waste time washing bottles? Transform this daily chore with the Baby Bretza Bottle Washer Pro, the first machine that automatically washes, sterilizes, and dries bottles, pump parts, and sippy cups at the push of a button. Its 20 spray jets clean everything 100%. Plus, it sterilizes with steam, then dries with germ-free air. Don't waste time on tedious handwashing. Let the Baby Bretza Bottle Washer Pro do it for you. Shop now at babybretza.com.